hoped he wasn't crying already because of me coming up here, but we'll see. It is good to see everybody out tonight. I hope you guys have had a real good day. It sure was pretty out there. A nice afternoon. I hope the things we discuss will be helpful uh, as we go on this journey tonight. The Christian life, to me, as I've said before, is the greatest life a person can possibly live. For anybody who's lived a life of worldliness and come out of uh, a sinful kind of life, it's really easy to see how much better the Christian life is, uh, to see the faults and the traps and the problems of life. Uh, there is so much more in the life of Jesus to live for Jesus that he has for us, peace, joy. We belong to a much larger family. We have a life of hope, but it is a life that we must be all in to enjoy. We must be totally committed to the life that God has for us to do, just to know the beauty of that life, the love that we are recipients of, to know all that God has for us in that life. I am mindful of Joshua as he was coming to the end of his life and he was speaking about all that God had done for the Israelites. And in Joshua chapter 23 verse 14, after he had called for all of Israel, the elders, their heads, the judges, and the officers together, and he said, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Of everything that God had promised the children of Israel, he did. Nothing had failed of all the promises and of all the things that he said he would do for them, he had done. To think about just how great and awesome God is, as we go on into chapter 24, Joshua relates all that he had done, how he had brought them out of Egyptian bondage, how he had parted the Red Sea, how he had cared for them through the wilderness, how he had fought for them. He had done so many things before them to drive out their enemies before them. All the things that God had done for them. But still, as we come to Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, he says, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Famous statement, isn't it? We've heard it many times in many sermons, but it still stands true today. They must choose whom they would serve, the great God who had done so much for them, who had blessed them so mightily, of the gods or their fathers in the land they had conquered. It appears that some were still holding on to those idols and those false gods. For Joshua in verse chapter 24, verses 14 and 23, he told them to put away the foreign gods of your fathers from amongst them. After all that God had done for them, still some held to something else. Our God will not take second place. He is holy. 
He is a jealous God, as Joshua told them in verse 19. He is the only God. Unfortunately, today the same needs to be addressed. Whom will you serve? It seems mankind does not change. Many gathered to serve God can't let go of something else. Something else had captured their hearts, their minds, something that they have devoted themselves more to than God. And my question to us is, why is it so hard of a choice to make? Why is it so hard a choice to make on whom you will serve? Our God has done so much for us. Perhaps we think life is better serving something else. There's more joy, there's no pleasure, there's more or less of one thing or another. Joshua said, if you think it evil to serve the Lord, then serve something else. Go after what you want. One of the guys at work recently decided he wanted to quit. He thought that he could go and get a job which was better, better pay, easier work, whatever it was, greener pastures. Everybody may have those times, but... After about two months, he realized it was not such a good deal. It certainly wasn't all that it was cracked up to be, and he decided he wanted to come back, and thankfully, he was able to. But such is not always the case, especially in our walk with God. Some who leave God to serve something else never do come to see how good living for God is. Demas is one of those souls. He is first mentioned in Philemon, verse 24, along with Mark, Aristocars, and Luke, and he is referred to as fellow laborers, someone laboring with Paul in the kingdom of God. What could be better stated of any than to be listed among the faithful, the fellow laborers with Paul? But in Colossians 4.14, he's again listed, but this time with not so much gusto, if we will. The Bible says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, we see that Demas has made a choice. I know that Demas knew the goodness of God. He was a Christian, one who worked with the Apostle Paul in saving people's souls, preaching the gospel. He knew the importance of the eternal soul. Paul says, sadly, for Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Nothing more is said of him after that. Did he fear his life? Did he fear hardship? Was it because of the Jews and persecution? Was it the desire for ease? What drew him away? We don't know. Did he really in the end repent? I can hope so, but we don't know. Did he know and understand all that God had done for him? As a fellow laborer of Paul in the kingdom, I would have to believe he did. He knew everything that, of the gospel and everything that God had done for him. But even if we were not sure, the letter to Thessalonica, where he went to, some said that was his home place. That is where he came from. The letter that first to First and Second Thessalonians was written some 10 to 15 years before Second Timothy where Paul said that he had departed. And we're reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not for wrath, to save you. 
who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18, if I can flip over there rather quickly. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Did he know what God did to save his soul? He did. Did he know the hope of eternal life and the resurrection? I believe he did. And he still left. The love of this present world and all it has to offer has claimed many a poor soul. Some who have been very faithful have let their guard down or become too tired or swayed to think like the world thinks rather than holding fast to the truth. And what do you gain? What do you gain? The world and all its lies is certainly no prize to boast about. Have you got it all? What good did it do you? It goes without saying the loss of God is too much to lose. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is still a sadder yet reference in the word of God, a reference to Christians who were still a part of the local congregation. They attended services and did church things, at least somewhat, but they were indifferent. They weren't concerned with the spiritual. Obviously, they didn't want to go to hell. Nobody wants to. Anybody who comes together time after time does not want to lose their soul. But they didn't really love God either. They were floating somewhere in the middle. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, the Lord wrote to the church of the Laodiceans, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. They had not fully left the Lord, but they weren't dedicated in sincerity either. The love of the world had mostly filled their heart. I could wish, continued the Lord, you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's not a very appealing thought, is it? Not something we would want. What a terribly sad thought. They thought they had it all, and they had nothing. In truth, as Jesus looked at at them, they made him sick. There is far more damage to the body of Christ and his mission that is done by the lukewarm Christian than even a cold and dead, lifeless person who has nothing to do with God or his church. The lukewarm Christian. They were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They didn't even understand their present condition. The Lord instructed them as to what they needed to do to return to him. And even though they were as miserable as they were, the Lord still loved them. Notice verse 19. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. 
Therefore, be zealous and repent. The goodness, long-suffering, and love of God. Can anyone deny how great our God is? Even when we go so far away, he beckons our return. Much like the guy at work who left for greener pastures and decided to come back. Luckily, the place where I work wanted him to come back. After admonishments over his past behavior, he was allowed to come back. When we think of the Laodiceans, nothing good is said about them. The words our blessed Savior used to describe them as we spoke, wretched, miserable, poor, they were spiritually destitute. Not even able to see themselves as they were or how much they truly needed God. They needed him more than they could ever imagine. If we can picture in our mind the sight of the Laodiceans, would it be a disheartening a picture? A church, a people no one wants to be patterned after or likened to, a picture we fear, one we do not want to become like ourselves, to be shamed and condemned, but it's not a whole picture. If we're just looking at that church, that congregation, we're not seeing it all. I want you to look until we see the image of Jesus with outstretched hands standing at the door. In love and encouragement, he says, be zealous. According to Thayer, it means to burn with zeal. Earnestly pursue. Be on fire for him. Get that back. And repent. Change your mind. Change your ways. Come back to the Lord. As we go on to verses 20 and 21, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And I also overcame as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He's standing at the door. They had shut the Savior out of his own church. But he did not kick in the door. He didn't force them to come back to him. He knocks. Will anyone open the door to him? Any single soul, will you open the door for Jesus? If so, he'll have communion. He'll restore that relationship. The image I see is one of such incredible long-suffering and love of God of Jesus our Savior for his fallen saints, even in such a condition as that. I cannot begin to find words to praise God for all he has and continues to do for us. To contemplate his great love and desire for our salvation, the question is, is it a hard choice to choose this day whom you will serve? If you think it evil to serve God, who has done so much for you, then serve something else. Serve the world. Go ahead and live everything that you can. Take its pleasures. Take its ease. But if, like Joshua, if you truly want it all, everything that you will ever need, if God is your everything, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.